0: Welcome to episode two of the Just Transmissions podcast, Aotearoa's eco socialist podcast, where we discuss all sorts of issues related to climate justice and social justice. We're pleased to be joined today by Tiano Toyono, who was also with us last time. So, Tiano is an Indigenous uh, rights campaigner, peace activist, and uh, climate activist. And we're also pleased to be joined today by Dr. Rebecca Jung. So, Rebecca works in medicine and she's also a junior doctor, which is really relevant. Um, for today's discussion we've got a pretty packed agenda today Tiano is going to give us a report back from um, his time in the Cook Islands and talk about climate issues over there and then we're going to have a discussion around industrial relations issues in New Zealand so um, there's been a whole bunch of stuff happening over the last year or so um, particularly since the since the last government was formed or the the newest government was formed and then we've got some lighthearted stuff to finish off Okay, so for this first section, uh, we've got Tiano is going to give a report back from his recent trip to the Cook Islands. Keralo Tiano. Kia ora, Kia ora, Paul, Kia ora, everybody. Um, yeah, so you're in the Cook Islands recently, um, doing some climate work. Is that right? Yeah, I was, I was working with a with an NGO which looks at supporting um,
1: indigenous leadership in the area of conservation. Um, so they wanted me to go over there to to sort of give some advice, if you like, and to get kind of indigenous knowledge or indigenous peoples lens over the kind of uh, environmental work that was happening at the Cook Islands, and that, uh, which is still happening in the Cook Islands, particularly around the Moana, which is the marine protected area, which came into came through into, legislation of the Cook
0: Islands a couple of years back.
1: Awesome. So they're looking at trying to, you know, put some raw flesh onto that piece of legislation. Great, great.
0: So what was the um, organization that you were doing the work for? Uh, Neoterra, um, just over there with, with those guys. Um,
1: yeah, and they're interested in, in how how they could support uh indigenous peoples um conservation and and environmental guardianship of
0: their of their natural environment. Could you tell us a bit more about the protected area? Um so it's, it's quite a big one, I understand, isn't it? So the Maramaana is a multi-use marine protected area
1: created in with the Parliament of the Cook Islands. Mm-hmm. Um it's the largest multi-use marine protected area in the world. Um, at the time of its passage. It covers Cook Island's entire inclusive economic zone, so around round or over one point nine million square kilometers. Massive. It's it's about you know recognizing um the connection that, that Cook Islanders have with uh with with the Moana, and it's about uh, you know re reaffirming those links with with you know with our with our Tupuna and of course with Tangaro. He's he's kinda of like the one of the main symbols for the cook islands as well and so it's really important to actually uh you know look at look at guardianship and you know all those things which help us identify as Pacific people uh the good thing was i got to i got to hang out with kevin needle uh for those of you that are rugby league fans he played for played for new zealand he was in the kiwis um but he's also a cook islander but he's also an environmentalist he proposed the idea in 2010 pretty he's the spokesperson for, spokesperson for it uh, it's re- it was really good to see him operate going around and talking to uh, talking with all the different groups in in the Cook islands trying to bring them together to bring this whole idea to life and so uh, he'd been doing that since around two thousand and ten and having that
0: come into fruition in 2017 is just great um, and and there's been uh, quite a few political changes more recently hasn't there
1: uh, the Pacific is always always uh,
0: always political <laughs> um, you know one of the
1: one of the th- one of the areas of discussion which are happening particularly around with Mora Moana is around mineral seabed um mining. Uh, some companies want to do some exploration on on uh, manganese nodules. So what manganese nodules they're made up of a whole lot of rare metals and minerals, so like cobalt. So these are the metals that you need in uh, you know, electric vehicles, iPhones and that kind of thing. Right. Um, but one of the other areas in the world where they we get cobalt is actually from the Congo and if people you know there's this idea around conflict cobalt where mm. uh you know mining for mining for cobalt actually creates uh, creates conflict and they use child labor you know really poor labor practices and, and that kind of thing um the thing for me is is that islands like the cook islands and like all the pacific islands they're all communities on the front lines of front lines of climate change least responsible for the impacts of climate change but bearing the brunt of climate change, so sea level rise, um, salinization of crops, um, impacts of severe uh, weather events, yet there are these potential manganese nodules uh, which might help power our electric vehicles and iPhones and iPads and all those kind of things, kind of low carbon technologies. So for me it's ironic because you have very incredibly vulnerable to climate change, having to dig even deeper to help find renewable technologies in Western countries. Um, there's another, yes. there's a biodiversity aspect to it as well. I mean, people don't really know uh, what is actually at that depth, the depth that they want to drill down on. So that's actually, for those, for those of us that are conservation minded environmentally minded, um, it's
0: something that's really, really top of mind for a lot of people. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and it seems like a quite a tricky situation, isn't it? And we need to, I guess, you know, in, in countries like New Zealand, we need to keep that in mind when we're, you know, purchasing our goods and things like that.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, small uh, Pacific Island nations are really susceptible to economic forces. So, mm. brought into New Zealand in the, you know, in, in, in the eighties, it actually had had an impact in the Cook Islands as well, because at pri- that time it was primarily an agricultural industry, but with Uh, with you know neoliberalism all of a sudden the bananas that we would have grown to then sell overseas were a lot cheaper to buy from other countries so all of a sudden that that economy just kind of tanked and so it had to transform pretty much overnight uh, and which is why uh, the cook islands is heavily reliant on heavily reliant on tourism so on one hand um, you had folks that are really mindful about environmental and climate change and all these other sorts of issues and then you got the real real dilemma of well we can't only just rely on tourism we need to find another way to actually under float
0: if you like economically so yeah yeah right that's a great point and, and then i guess that that would kind of um in, encourage them to maybe investigate some of those um some of those mineral resources but in, international trade and things like that have harmed i guess other industries that were better for the environment right but also good for their economy it's just because economic forces. Yeah. Um, and that you know, they have a massive impact. Why would you go and grow all these things when there's nowhere to sell them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. What's the sort of relationships like between the islands and those other neighboring countries? The Pacific
1: is, you know, has its own kind of political ecosystem, if you like. Uh, you know, one hand you have China wanted to get more influence in the Pacific, and then of course you have America jockeying position as well. So you have that you have that dynamic as well. Um New Zealand has a long time colonial relationship uh, with the Cook Islands and Niue, and it still administers the Cook Tokelo, for example. So it has relationships with Pacific islands, and Australia has its own set of relationships with another uh, bunch of countries as well in the Pacific. Have to
0: manage all those different types of types of relationships, and and what do you think the New Zealand's role should be? Um, and I guess what what role do we play at the moment? Do do the Cook Islands look to New Zealand's politicians? You know, obviously to be a good. Um, ally of the Pacific and a good neighbour, and, and how do you think we're doing there? And what could we do more of?
1: Um, a couple of years back, this is during John Key, um, Prime Minister Henry Puna came down um, to because he wanted to rethink and relook at the relationship with New Zealand. So uh, you know, the Cook Islands has only been around for 50 years. Before that, it was especially basically run run from New Zealand. So it, we have independence, but in free association with New Zealand. So that means Cook Islanders, and along with New Orleans, we get New Zealand passports. Um, but he wanted to rethink that relationship. I, I personally think that was a good idea because, you know, 50 years is a long time. It's enough time to actually think, well, actually, what is working with this relationship? What could be done better? Are there things that are missing? Let's have a look at it. John Key didn't want to of it. And so... Um, and and so, and so that discussion never really happened, but I think it it really doesn't does need to happen. So some time ago, um, president the then president of French Polynesia Oscar Tamari, came down. He was throwing around this idea of having a Pacific passport, which would support freer movement of people around the Pacific. You know, I also thought that was a was a pretty good idea as well. And for me, it's because I place alternative New Zealand in the Pacific geographically, historically, and I also think importantly politically as well. And so, if we take that perspective, then we need to not see the islands as just another bunch of countries, but as as close allies, but also uh, countries that we have a very close relationship with. You know, in these times of climate change, it is, it is very important to to remember that. There are barriers for people from the islands, like Dengali, to actually come over here and migrate over here, even though they're basically right next door,
0: and uh, particularly particularly since valley is very, very vulnerable to climate change. Lots of food for thought there for New Zealand politicians and um, with this new government, you know, under Jacinda Ardern and, and with, with Winston Peters as our um, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, um, what what sort of relationship do you feel like they have with the islands and, you know, how have you been feeling about the messages that they've been sending so far?
1: Um, I think it's important to understand these things within the context of the of the Pacific. Uh, i mean it's very different different to new zealand like when you're in the pacific you have australia on one hand and you've got like america and china sort of jockey position out there in the pacific as well and so when you look at for example australia and their ins- insistence with the coal mining industry context new zealand looks very good <laughs> you know it's not too hard to look good when you've got australia doing what it's doing um, so people are very hopeful, I guess. I don't know if people really. Well, I know if they don't really get into the details so much sure of whether what we're actually going to do is going to actually have an
0: impact. But there is definitely a sense that things are moving in the right direction. Hmm, interesting. And and so I mean I, I know when we've talked before, um, we've talked about particular personalities, and and you feel like Jacinda and and Winston Peters are quite well known over there, perhaps not or more, much more so than other politicians. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, definitely, Um, you know, know, I kind of mix in these circles and people talk about Jacinda Ardern and they talk about Winston Peters, um, you know, mainly because of her high-profile role and the things that she's been saying on the international stage in particular about climate change.
0: What do you think? Do you think the Greens have a role to play in, you know, being more vocal about climate-related issues in the Pacific and particularly the sort of detail that you are talking about before and, you know, to, to sort of build relationships over there yeah i think so i mean if any party's been banging the drum on this one it has been the greens
1: for years and years and years um and so i think in order to make sure that what is being said on the international stage has substance that is something definitely the greens
0: should be doing yeah for sure and i think even like raising some of those issues around trade and um, yeah yeah i mean because you know there's, there's there's climate change on one
1: hand and biodiversity and the environment but then you know if you're on the the perspective of a of a small island nation you've also got to to balance up those economics as well so um if you're going to be serious about climate change for example you've got to lay that down as something that is that, that is foundational to all the other things that you have and that's including trade so for me the environment comes first before trade does
0: Second section, our conversation on on industrial relations. Um, I've I've done a little bit of reading and a bit of research to pull together a list of a bunch of the strikes and and things that happened last year. Um, so I just want to go over that briefly um, before we uh, jump into our discussion because there was really so much that happened. If you cast your mind back to the start of twenty eighteen, there was bus driver strikes, uh, train operator strikes in, in Auckland, um, cinema workers went on strike. Um, some retail uh, retail workers went on strike, I think farmers and a few other companies. Um, then, of course, we had in July the big um, nationwide nurses strike. Um, so 30,000-odd nurses um, there were affected. Uh, then staff at IRD and um, Ministry of uh, Business Innovation and Employment, so MB, um, they struck in July. We had ANZ National Bank staff strike. Um, in August, we had primary school teachers um have a nationwide strike uh ministry of justice workers striking tomato growers um, there was all sorts of stuff happening then later on in the year um secondary school teachers announced a plan to strike so um that I think is is starting early this year or, or first term this year then there was also the fuel around the New zealand engineers um almost striking just before Christmas now we are sort of in the midst of a, a junior doctor strike so is really just so much happening in the space, and so I think it's a it's a great topic um, to talk about and make sure um, that we can really have a robust discussion around it. Um, but obviously, the the junior doctors is the um, one that's happening right now, and it's great to have Rebecca with us um, to talk through some of the detail there. So, I wonder, Rebecca, if you can just tell us um, a little bit about what's going on, what are the key issues in this in the strike at the moment?
2: Oh, so. Uh, the way I look at it, as a junior doctor who's a member of the RDA, is there are kind of uh, two tracks of things happening. Uh, firstly, there is the junior doctors who have um, who campaigned really hard and managed to successfully get safer hours in their rostering um, from 2016. That contract, that mecca, that was negotiated at the end of February. So there's that, the ongoing kind of campaign that junior doctors. Are running for say for hours. Um, at the back of that, there's the more complicated uh, issues that are going on around junior doctors' unions that now exist and the way that the DHBs have been negotiating with them. I'm not sure if you guys have heard about the second doctors' union that's last year.
0: Um, no, no, go ahead. What's, what's that about?
2: I, so they're called STONZ, so Specialty Trainees of New Zealand. And they're mostly made up of junior doctors, so ones that have been working as part of a, a training program, usually. And their main complaint is that the uh, safer hours rostering uh, prevents them from getting the level and intensity of training that they need in order to progress with their training. I think um, it is mostly people in the more surgical uh, specialties that are taking part, and they've already negotiated a new mecca with the DHBs. And the big issue and the reason why we're having these uh, continuing strike actions is because the A mecca with the safe safe hours lapses at the end of February, the DHBs will be able to only offer the stones mecca, which doesn't have safe hours. So it's a a clawback that people will be able to uh, roster junior doctors onto work Sixteen-hour days in a row. So that's um, a regression from the progress that was made in two thousand and sixteen, and it's quite an impending deadline, which is why strike action is occurring.
0: Right. That's really really distressing to hear. Um, So just to clarify around the dynamics with the two sort of unions. So this new one's kind of formed, and they've negotiated another agreement with the DHBs. Is is that how it's working?
2: That's right. So um, I think. Stones, the second union formed in response to the 2016 um, agreement for safer hours, where um, s- certain junior doctors, particularly those in surgical type training, found felt that um, the new rostering would be restrictive to their training requirements.
0: Right, so they've they've negotiated to have longer or, or to be enabled to work longer hours.
2: So they've essentially negotiated to go back to the um, old Mm. rostering system. From the point of view of junior doctors in particular, um, we weren't really starting from a good or healthy place in terms of rostering. It's been a growing issue over the last couple of years in particular. Junior doctor is a very uh, stressful and trying job. I think it was last year where in Australia over the course of like six months they had junior doctors who actually um, ended their own lives so the rates of um, mental illness substance misuse and suicide amongst junior doctors is way above the um, background population so that's the kind of reasoning behind um, the safe for hours campaign
0: Th- thanks very much for that Rebecca there's a couple of issues I've been thinking about with this the junior doctors' strike you know things that have come up in the media because it's one of those things where a, a lot of what well, I feel anyway, a lot of the general public um, aren't unionized or not working class. You know, there's this, a message that strikes are, are, tend to be about pay, but obviously this is, you know, more focused on, like you are talking about, safer hours and making sure that, um, yeah, there's, there's safe working conditions for people. Yeah, it's really distressing to, to hear that, you know, people are really being worked, you know, overworked so hard. And, and also feel like that they need to do that to to get ahead, you know, and and that kind of makes me feel that there's something really broken and, and wrong with the whole system, you know? Tiano, with your with your experience um in, in sort of union organizing and things like that, what what's your kind of thoughts about, I guess, you know, not just the junior doctor strike, but a lot of the strikes that we've had more recently?
1: I mean yeah, I I, I don't remember this amount of strike action on this kind of happened would have been like the late 80s 90s i think mm, just yeah. kind of think back you know it's been it's been a long time and it sort of points to the points to see how you know how how much wages and working conditions and all that kind of stuff have have really have really plummeted and the, i i think it i think it really does put the labor party in particular on notice as well that they need to actually come to the party on on this, on these issues um so i you know, I would expect to see something, a couple of budgets from them, you know, because if, if, you know, if a bank falls over, if the dairy industry has a, has an emergency then you know, ma- money magically falls from the skies, but when it's teachers, doctors and nurses and, um, you know, folks working in, uh, in the retail industry and, and so on, you know, it's, it's really, it's really hard to get them to move and it shouldn't be that way. You know, they should be the first bunch on the
0: to actually help workers do what they need to do. Yeah, exactly. To safe, but also to feed their whānau. So, yeah, you, you raised the Labour Party, Tiano, um, and I guess the challenges that they have um, being in government now um, and that not really being uh, an excuse for, you know, um, ignoring their, their constituents. But how much do we think that the Labour Party represents workers these days?
1: Um, I don't think they do, to be honest. I mean, you do have some unions that are, of course, Labour Party affiliates and mm. prop them up and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, we've got to remember the history of, of what happened, you know, during that early period of neoliberalism where we moved from compulsory union membership to what we have now. And so, um, you know, the Labour Party were at the forefront of that, you know, party government deregulated and privatized and industries disappeared pretty much overnight they own that historically and we should be mindful of that and everything that we do as well mm.
0: um, and that's that's still the dominant narrative you'd have to say isn't it um,
1: yeah, yeah neoliberalism is still there i mean it, it failed trickle down economics doesn't work we all know that New narratives on the horizon you know neo, neoconservatism is 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 rising you just need to look at brazil and force trump's america to see that the ideology which is by the right now is makes neoliberalism look like picnic down at the back.
0: and it's it's a difficult sort of political um proposition to deal with isn't it because if if we you know um divert attention to to fighting those um ideas um then you know some would argue that that it, it you know, neoliberalism is kind of, is better, you know, um, and yes, yeah, so, you yeah, know, we ought to just uh, stick with it, but, you know, we also need to um, to change that significantly.
2: Yeah, Speaking, I guess, mainly about the junior doctor's strike, but about the strike action that's been happening over the last year in general, I think um, a lot of the, what the workers want can get lost in um, more political narratives around labor movements in general and I think that makes it hard for people who don't have access to um, that sort of conversation to sympathize with something that will like in, gen- in movements that will in general benefit everyone so maybe like this is a conversation we need to be having about make labor movements more um, relatable. Um, yeah,
0: for sure. How how do you think like, how would you tackle that problem? What, what would be the first thing that you do to, um, yeah, try and make those movements more relatable?
2: Thinking about what's happening now with the junior doctors, some of the most recent media coverage of the strikes, and there's a lot more about um, the conflicts that are going on with uh, different union organizations in, in the country, rather than about the reason safer hours are so important, like we're, like this is an absolute good that we're talking about, rather than um, a conflict between two sides. Like it benefits the workers and it benefits patients and the healthcare system as a whole. So like looking at it as an industrial relations conflict rather than um, movement towards a common good is quite... Um, it takes a lot away from what the junior doctors had achieved and are trying to maintain.
0: Mm, good point. So like those, um, so the internal politics of the, of the situation. Like, I don't happening. think the
2: internal politics are relevant to most people who are mm. trying to learn a bit more about what's going on. But
0: it's, it's interesting to hear about the, um, the challenges that um, the workers are facing and I guess like the different views of, of the different groups as to what's important. Um mm. for those doctors. And there's just there's so much activity happening and in in a way, you know, it's really um it's it's great to see, you know, obviously it's bad that workers are under so much pressure, but it's great to see that they're that they're organizing and um that there's so many strikes happening and that they're willing to sort of say enough is enough and, and even under, you know, a Labour government that's you know, it, it it doesn't change things just because the government changes. Um they still need to to fight hard to get um, a, a good result. Um, and like I was I was reading the the CTU put out a, a survey recently, um, and I think it just really kind of captures the the ongoing pressure that workers are under. But there was um, this this stat came out of it that said seventy percent of the respondents um, said that their incomes were not keeping up with cost of living, and uh, more than fifty five percent reported that their workloads gotten worse. So it just keeps happening that people can't uh, they're working harder but going backwards but, but again, great to see that you know there is a movement a, you know a big movement building for this what's what's next like where do we see this going so we've got um, primary school teachers um, striking when um, when school goes back um, very shortly um, last year with the with the nurses strike, I think it was only the fourth Deal that got brought to them um, that they eventually accepted. Um, and there was also some commentary at the time that, you know, it, it was sort of um, really accepted out of, out of exhaustion um, rather than the fact that it was a great deal from the government. But, you know, we've, we've got the um, Tiano earlier, you spoke about um, what's going to be coming up um, from, from Labour this year um, in terms of their, I guess, their sort of well-being budget, Grant Robson's calling it the well-being budget. Yeah, um, yeah what, what's what's next for this movement and what do they really need to, um, yeah, you know, feel like they, they don't have to be continually striking anymore?
1: Um, well, that well-being budget should, should deliver, has to deliver, you know, to its core values, so on and so forth. Be looking to that and also to you know to the the follow up budget as well. Um it's in their best interest to do that. Doesn't happen. Well then you know things will just continue to ramp up. Every new government gets a whole pass for the first year, but then the third year kicks in, you've got to like really put the you know, pedal to the mill and prove your prove your worth.
0: I mean, do you think like for from my point of view, they can't just keep up this kind of trying to balance business interests and you know, and give the workers you know enough or what they think is enough. It's just not gonna cut the mustard, I don't think. I mean you, you only like hear two narratives in the media and it's the um the businesses and, and the capitalists saying that, oh the you know, the government's just too uh union friendly and they're trying to bolster the power of the unions, etc. Yeah but and what's then, the wrong
1: with that? Like I personally don't find anything wrong with that.
0: No, no, not at all. And but then the you know the other side of the coin is that the unions and the workers um are saying that the government's not doing enough for them and there's no you know so that they i don't think the labor party and the labor-led government can actually you know appeal to both of those camps like there's there's no middle ground there they need to pick a side um
1: yeah Yeah. i'd agree with that i mean but i you know i mean i get i get well i think i get the business argument you know we're all gonna make a dollar pay some bills for know that kind of thing but that shouldn't come at the cost of you know i mean it's... i
2: think it's important to take into account the fact that um everything that has culminated in the current strike action happening everywhere is a, a erosion of rights of workers rights it has happened over years and years it's not just like there was a change of government and if suddenly everyone was unhappy and i think um catherine delahunty's article in the spin-off about why the teachers couldn't strike under the national government is like really good background reading to understand why everything's happening now. That I think that um, workers across all different um, areas have a specific expectation of the, the Labour government and the current Prime Minister to actually do the right thing so I think that is really the only way ahead for the government.
0: Yeah it's a great point Rebecca and, and that article by um, Catherine was was excellent and i recall that that point that she made that during those years of national when you know they had uh, national standards coming in they were really focused on saving education itself um and Sorry, was survival yeah 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 um so at least um at least that's over but but more to do there i guess
1: do you reckon like a plan right so if they were do what we want them to do then it would be like a planned and be a bit more transparent about how these needs will be met
2: definitely um and like people need to see that even if it's not exactly as fast as they would like that things are changing for the better and i'm not sure that we've seen
0: yeah i'd agree and, and even some of the messages that are coming from from the government are actually quite concerning like hapkins was saying about like workers um and like their expectations were too high and things like that um
1: your expectations should be high yeah working um, people yeah. people's expectations should always be high if they did say that that's what my answer would be hmm.
2: there's this article from the 22nd of january titled education minister chris hipkins believes teachers strike unjustified is that the kind of comment you were talking about paul
0: that's exactly it thank you rebecca yeah and and I think it's those types of messages that are really you know unproductive and a- actually um only really serve to help the narrative that um you know the business roundtable and folks like that put out that you know um that unions are are just greedy and they're and they're trying to you know um get more um out of the government that they're not entitled to et cetera and and it's you know workers must just feel so you know, they're already under the pump and when you see messages like that coming out from a supposedly Labour government, um it's yeah, it must be so disheartening for them. I, I wonder if um in terms of the what next, like if the government doesn't deliver and, and if this well being budget just isn't up to scratch, um, I mean, you know, there's there's gonna obviously be more action, like you said, Tiano, but is what does that action look like? Is it a like is it a general strike where we see more solidarity from from other unions, um, where do we think it could possibly lead? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above, I reckon. Yeah. Um, and and I mean, the government could get punished at the next election. You know.
1: Who knows what happens eh, with, 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 with people when they vote? I often ask myself, but um, yeah. No, I think a strike action will ramp up. Um. And, and it, it, it'll be a matter of how do you build solidarity across uh, unions and with with working folks, but also within different communities as well. So it raises the awareness on why people are doing what they're doing. You know, because we're living in a, in a non-unionized area era. era where, um, it's sort of getting that community on board as well. I think would be also important.
0: Yeah, absolutely
2: like we were discussing just before i think the way forward in terms of like the labor movement is solidarity across different organizations i think that for the labor government they really need to be aware of if they fail to deliver during this term it really sets a negative precedent in terms of future progressive governments in new zealand if they fail the workers if the workers turn their backs on the labor party then that will have um ramifications for decades to come
0: so do you see any sort of evidence of that of this happening at the moment and and do you think the unions and grassroots movements have the capacity for this um, sort of linking and, and building movements together
2: and speaking mostly from what I know of I think the solidarity that has been shown between um, junior doctors senior doctors and nurses um, is a great example of what can be achieved between them they're like a Major part of the health workforce, and if those three groups can come together, then I believe that we can do that on a wider scale in Aotearoa. Yeah,
0: thanks, Rebecca. Tiana, did you have a comment on that?
1: Yeah, um, I you know, I've been really active in the Indigenous people's rights movement, you know, my, pretty much my entire adult life, and I know that many of our core organizers, not just here in Aotearoa, but also in other places that have organ, um, where I've worked and organized and stuff. Um, people who have come from the union movement have been some of our best organisers. And so there's always that long history of politically focused within unions that see the workers' struggle as connected to other struggles, so whether it's the Indigenous Peoples' Rights struggle or organising against climate change or solidarity with Palestine and and, with with other groups in the world. Um, you often do find union workers in there and so I, I guess for me one of the things that I like to see is well, one of the things I would like to see is more of that, you know this, this greater sense of connection between all the different struggles
0: Awesome, thank you Tiano Yeah, it's, it's really um, promising when that, that stuff does come to fruition and it's really needed at the moment Let's jump here to our uh, new lighthearted section. We want to try something a little bit different to, to wrap up our podcast. We just want to get your sort of worst take of the week. And I've got one for this week that I just heard on the radio this morning. Our friend Vernon Tarver, um, former Green Party candidate, and um, I think he's a member of the National Party now, I'm not sure. He uh, was talking about the prospects of a new uh, centrist, um, what he called the, a true Green Party, um, which could uh, have. Um, or for, form government potentially with, with any party in New Zealand, um, so obviously alluding to um, national as well as Labour. I just wanted to throw it out to both of you as to what you think about this. Clearly Simon Bridges needs new friends. But
1: is not getting any popular. He's still only the lonely and dancing on the stars. Um, so they need, they need another kind of little proxy party to help propel them into Parliament. So that's what I, that's what I see when I read that particular move in the media at the moment.
2: It kind of reads like a marketing pitch like the idea of a blue green or teal movement comes up every once in a while and I feel like you know one person I've said it like a hundred times like at the end of the day with a party like the national party profit will trump environmental um, needs every time so I think blue green is kind of a misnomer to begin with, it doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I like to think of it as um much along those lines, you know, the problem with the blue green movement is that their is first and, and environmentalists are very distant second. And yeah, I just think you are you're, you're totally right, Rebecca. And Antiano, um, it's a strategic ploy. Um in terms of the you know that the message, um it doesn't really make any sense. It's kind of incoherent and and I actually think that, you know, the Green Party are pretty moderate already so it, it doesn't really fill any sort of gap and and i don't really see it going anywhere to be honest um
1: you think they're doing something though because it kind of like i know i kind of feel like this they're looking around the room and they need a buddy.
0: oh absolutely yeah there's also talk about them you know trying to help prop up a, a sort of new version of the conservative party or something that's um a bit more um on this sort of you know the, the conservative right um, to help do a similar job.
1: Yeah, those guys, climate change deniers. Mm, no so whatever, ever, whatever like, works for them, really. Uh, I hope no one ever takes the the conservative party serious in this country. No. Yeah, yeah that, for me, they're kind of like that. They're a bit like the Republicans, kind of Jesus loves guns and hates gays. Um, yeah. Type, type politic. Um, I would never like to see that here. But of course, like as I was saying earlier, Simon does need
0: friends, so. Mm. Did either of you have um, a, a bad take of your own from the week? I've oh, got a of bad take. <laughs> did, anybody, did anybody watch
1: that Rose Garden um, when he, he caved to
0: he caved to the Democrats over the wall? Sorry, oh. uh, do, would you mind repeating yeah. that, Tiano? I think you cut out like a crucial point. Oh, that it's that just thought, uh, yeah. you know that, there was there was the
1: there was the Rose Garden speech at the White House that Trump did when he completely caved into. Nancy Pelosi um
0: oh yes to to reopen the government uh, yeah to reopen
1: the government it was just like farcical it was so it was like you shut down the government people went hungry people were lining up for meals and you got nothing it, it's the out of the deal but I don't think anyone's going to be putting that picture on the wall <laughs>
0: he got fired in this instance yeah, yeah yeah
1: that would be my bad take of the day <laughs>
0: that's a good one did you have anything you wanted to share Rebecca
2: so um, I don't have a bad take, but I've got a notice. Uh, there's a rally for uh, a woman, the woman who was murdered in Flatbush by her partner um, about a month ago. So the rally is on this Wednesday from uh, 7 p.m. in Aote Square, and I think it's really important that we show up in the same numbers that attended the candlelight vigils for Grace Millay. because um, I do see that because this is a woman of colour who was killed. It just hasn't been getting the same amount of media attention and high-profile people speaking out about it as um, the other murderers, despite the fact that they're equally tragic. So I think if people can take a moment to show solidarity against domestic violence in this instance as well as the first, it would be really great. So I hope to see you all there.
0: Thank you, Rebecca. That's great. And that's um, Wednesday, the 30th of January. And sorry, what time was that again?
2: Seven to 8pm in Aotea Square.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that. And yes, let's um, hope that there's a really big turnout there. Thank you very much, Rebecca um, and Antiano, for your thoughts. Um, thank you to our awesome crew, Gorian, uh, for all the work that he does. Um, we'll see you next time and solidarity with all of um, the workers, especially those that are striking at the moment very bravely killed
2: right, us..